You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Hey, and before I talk about anything else, I got to remind you, folks, if you have not signed up for the next Wealth Formula Meetup, you should do so right now. Space is limited, and this is going to be, I think, the coolest event we've ever had. I really do. We're going to do personal finance talks like usual. You know, we're going to talk about taxes, asset protection, real estate. But you know what else? We are going to have a a talk on uh, other personal finance stuff too. Like, for example, we are going to have a guy who ran a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East talk about the global economy and what do these interest rates mean to us and what should we do? And also an electrical engineer from MIT who has got a phenomenal idea in terms of Bitcoin mining with um, with essentially energy from behind the grid of wind farms. That is very exciting. He's going to talk about that and there'll be an opportunity potentially uh, at the event there. Uh, but beyond the finance stuff, the stuff I think that you really, everybody needs to know about and I'm passionate about is we are going to talk again about uh, longevity and lifespan. Now, I did a talk last meeting and it was very popular. And this, uh, this, uh, this event we're going to have, you know, I'll be speaking, but there'll be a few other speakers who are going to talk uh, in much more detail about specifics as it relates to brain and hormones and things like that. Uh, this is really critical stuff, folks. I mean, if you're not following it, um, you really should be. Why? Because the technology in this space is moving so quick. I mean, you know, the first person who lived 150 years old, already born. I pretty much guarantee you that. And I also, you may not believe this, believe that most of us, most of us who are, you know, middle-aged, we're going to live to 100. And when we do, we're going to feel like we're, like we're, you know, 50. Why? Well, listen, science and technology behind longevity right now is moving at a light speed. I mean, it is crazy fast how move, uh, how it's moving uh, to the point where some have argued that the concept of longevity escape velocity will be reached by 2030 to 2035. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but what that means, in other words, is that the ability for people to essentially become immortal may be, may be near. Now, that sounds all scientific and crazy, like futuristic, right? But one thing's for sure, the idea of chronological age dictating your health and wellness will be redefined in the coming years. I have no doubt about that. And in fact, uh, it has already, it already has. And you need to know this stuff so that you can implement these things in your life today, right? You want to start working on some of those things. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about it in the afternoon. Obviously, you, the other option is, you know, you can certainly go to the bus tour as well, which, which is often uh, what we've done in the afternoon. But there is these, you know, tremendous opportunity to learn this stuff that I think may be life changing for you. Go to wealthformulaevents.com now and sign up. That's wealthformulaevents.com. Speaking of, you know, not believing 
or thinking that this is possible, this idea of the end of the relevance of chronological age, people have a really hard time in general, including myself, getting their heads around new ideas uh, like this, an entirely different paradigm, which I believe we are again on the precipice of. And And the reason for that is we live in our own reality and that reality influences our cognitive biases, right? What we see right now is what we think is real. And But then if you look back to, you know, just a few decades ago, we lived in a world without the internet. We, we lived in the world without cell phones. I mean, imagine, just imagine, like these kids who were born after cell phones, their reality is the cell phone, Right. So anyway, the bottom line is that that's what I'm talking about. It's cognitive biases and trying to, you know, really open your mind up to this entire concept of change coming our way. You know, cognitive bias is bigger than just what I'm talking about. It's not just about technology and everything. It affects everything in our life. We perceive the way we perceive because of our biases. And what's interesting to me in today's modern day is that because of social media and you have all these different news outlets and very little cohesiveness in the way that people get news and information these days, there's actually a significant divergence within our population on what exactly reality is. And that more than anything, probably explains the polarity that we see these days uh, as well. I have to say that I've, you know, as far as this idea of there being multiple realities and multiple truths, I've never seen that in my lifetime. That said, it is important to recognize or at least try to recognize your cognitive biases and try to add rationality because that makes a difference. It'll make a difference in your life, what you do, the decisions you make every day, and especially in the world of investing. So anyway, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast this week is an expert on cognitive bias and has actually written a book on how to overcome it. And we will have that after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Gleb Sipersky. He's CEO of the Future of Work Consultancy, which is a disaster avoidant expertise group, which specializes in helping analytical leaders adopt a hybrid first model instead of incrementally improving on the traditional office centric model. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books. Today, we're going to talk about issues related to one of those books, which is the blind spots between us. Gleb, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Buck. It's a pleasure to be on. So, you know, this is a this is actually a big topic, which is cognitive bias. And I think in order to, I think, get an idea of, of the uh, importance of this, let's start out and, and, and define what exactly cognitive bias is. Sure. So cognitive biases are the mental errors in our minds that cause us to make bad financial decisions and all other sorts of decisions in our professional and personal life. And why do we have these errors in our minds? Well, the thing is, our minds, our emotions, our gut intuitions are not set up for the modern environment. That's They're set up for the ancestral environment. That's why it's very tempting for us to do things like, let's say, sell high and buy, buy low. Well, we, we want to buy low and sell high, but it, most investors end up doing the opposite. They buy high and sell low. 
And there are a lot of other wealth issues that financial matters and professional matters and life matters that people make mistakes about because we're not wired for the modern environment. So again, our intuitions, our emotions, our gut reactions are really wired for that ancestral environment. When when we lived in small tribes of 50 people to 150 people, and we had to survive based on our fight and flight impulses. So that's what we're wired for. That's what our intuitions tell us to do. And that's why Warren Buffett makes a lot of money betting against retail investors, because he knows about these cognitive biases, and he has studied these cognitive biases, and he knows how to go against people's instincts and intuitions. So this is why you should be learning about these cognitive biases, because a lot of people don't know about them. And there are so many, whether in investments, whether in ordinary financial decision-making, buying a house, whether in your job, you're going to make a lot of mistakes if you don't know about these blind spots. So I want to drill down a little bit on this idea that these cognitive biases are, in a way, I guess what you're saying is that they're essentially hardwired. Uh, from the way we evolved through time uh, in small villages, hunter gatherers, you know, looking for food, uh, give us, give me some example of why that, why would that kind of hard wiring um, lead to somebody uh, buying uh, high and selling low? Happy to. So let's think about a very fundamental aspect of what our impulses were about, the fight or flight response. What does that mean? Well, in the savannah environment, it was very important for us to flee or fight in a survival situation. When we heard a noise, it was important for us to not spend a lot of time thinking about, well, what's going on with that noise? Might it be a saber-toothed tiger? Might it be a snake? Instead, what was very important was for our emotions to wind us up for action for us to have a bias toward action, whether that's fighting or fleeing. So our ancestors were wired to jump at a hundred shadows rather than to miss a saber-toothed tiger or a snake or an opposing tribal member attacking us. Now, think about that. So that means that we are wired to make very quick judgments based on very little information that's coming at us immediately. So what's happening with why do people sell Why do people sell low? Why do people buy high? Well, when the market moves and people start paying attention to it, oh, the market has moved. That means that it's already moved. (laughs) And that means that the market has already moved and people have FOMO, fear of missing out, based on very impulsive, intuitive information. And they forget that large institutional investors and hedge fund managers and so on, they know about these cognitive biases. Warren Buffett knows about these cognitive biases. And they get their money in before the market moves, or they make the move of the market. So you're going to be ending up buying after the institutional investors have already made the market move based on your instincts and impulses, if you just react as how humans ordinarily react. So the instinct, on, for- the instinct, I guess the parallel I'm thinking about, and to correct me if I'm wrong, is so you know, um, selling low would be like running away from a saber-toothed tiger. There's, there's evidence yep. of, of, of danger. And so you need to make action yep. and so you sell. And then exactly. the, so that's like a, that's a fear thing. And then on the, on the flip side, uh, you might have a situation where there is um, an opportunity to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 
to gather up as much food as possible in an environment because there is plenty and you see everybody else has it and you want to get your share. So you're buying in. Yep. And yeah, so that's the attack. That's the attack mode. Yeah. So that's the fight response. So you want to fight for your share. Right. Right. And that leads to the FOMO aspect. Interesting. Exactly. So, um, so I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about, um, technology as it plays a role in blinding humans to truth. Mm-hmm. How, uh, tell, tell me about, because obviously these worlds that we're talking about are, um, you know, they're paradoxical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the responses that we had that were hardwired and sometimes don't uh, work in a technology uh, with the type of technology in the world that we have. And also, uh, beyond that, technology may exist in part to, um, uh, to, to take advantage of our hardwiring. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's take a look at Robinhood as an example, the app. That app has very popular and people, it's very popular because it has gamified investing. And gamification is very much technique that uses our intuitions, our cognitive biases to take advantage of us. So it causes Robinhood, gets people to keep buying keep trading or selling, whatever it is, keep buying, keep trading, because it gives people a reward, an incentive, praise. You know, you get those balloons, you get those celebrations when that happens. And you see your stock going up, going down. So it induces people to do a lot of day trading. And we know from extensive research that day trading is one of the worst things you can be doing unless you're a supremely sophisticated investor, which unless you are a hedge fund manager or you're kind of involved in that world, you are unlikely to be that sophisticated. So day trading is going to be pretty bad for many people, and it will be bad for me, it will be bad for anyone who is not very deeply involved in the situation. And there are apps, technology, like you're talking about, Buck, that make people very tempted intuitively to engage in this because it's gamified and it rewards them and people feel good about it. And they see their stocks going up, down, it's kind of like sports, they're cheering them on, right? And so people feel that they can make money and then they end up losing a lot of money. And Robinhood, of course, makes a lot of money on you trading. So it makes it its source of income comes from you trading. So it's incentivizing you to trade and it's manipulating you to trade using those intuitions, using those instincts, using our beliefs and our feelings and our gut emotions. Any person who wants to make good decisions about their finances, whether it's in trading, you know, financial investments, or in all sorts of other areas, needs to learn very fundamentally that their gut intuitions are going to be leading them astray very often, and that there are sophisticated people who learn about these cognitive biases and who are going to be out to screw you and take advantage of you because, you know, the money has to come from somewhere and someone has to be left holding the bag. And unfortunately, it's retail investors who are going to be left holding the bag overwhelmingly. And so that is what's going to be happening if you don't know about these blind spots, if you don't know about these cognitive biases. You need to learn that your intuitions are going to be leading you astray. And you can't let your intuitions lead you astray. You need to learn where they're going to be leading you astray. And so those are kind of some of the basis for these cognitive biases. And there's a whole number of specific cognitive biases that we need to learn about. And I can happy to share about yes, some please. of them, that, that, the that specific ones. Mm-hmm. 
great. So that's kind of the technology question uh, as an example of Robinhood and so on. Let's talk about some of the cognitive biases. Now, you have to learn about which cognitive biases are going to be most meaningful to you. One of the biggest ones in wealth management is called sunken costs. So sunken costs, that means that when you made an investment and the investment is not going well, it's very tempting for us to throw in good money after bad. Sometimes that might mean doubling down on your investment. Sometimes that might mean holding on to the investment, even though the situation is clearly deteriorating. But why do people hold on to that investment when it's not a good idea? And when others are telling them it's not a good idea, when they're looking at market conditions and they're seeing that, oh, you know, Bitcoin is going down or, you know, crypto went or whatever it is, if, you know, Bitcoin might be going up. I'm not necessarily criticizing Bitcoin. I'm giving an example. If you think that Bitcoin is going to go down, there are still a bunch of people who will just huddle and, you know, keep holding on because they feel that, well, if I sell Bitcoin now, I'll have, I'll have lost money and you know i'll be wrong and i right. don't want to be wrong right and so that's the intuition so that's when you're feeling that you, when you're feeling you don't want to be wrong and when you're feeling that you don't want to lose money that's your gut reactions causing you to make some decisions that are going to be pretty harmful and that's called sunken costs mm -hmm. so you want to back away from that you want to say okay let's stop you know we have these i have these emotions regardless of whether i'll be wrong or whether i'll have you know made fixed in the loss when i sell when i made the sale what i want to do is ignore the past set aside the past you know the past happened i need to let it go and i need to see the future what's the future going to be looking at market signals looking at what's the situation going to be is my investment going to go up is it going to go down if you think it's going to realistically be keep going down but you don't want to sell it because you don't want to be wrong that is that is a problem if you're it's going to keep going down unless you have some very specific tax reasons you should really sell that investment if you think it has a pretty decent chance of going up you might want to hold on to it but if you think it's going to go down and you know mo most likely it's going to go down that's when you should move sell it and you certainly should not be investing more money into something sure. that is going to go wrong so that's sunken costs and that's a big problem for us and it comes from us not wanting to be wrong not wanting to face up to that mistake that we've made sure sure that makes sense how about uh, yeah tell tell us more uh, cognitive biases sure. Another huge one with wealth management is called loss aversion. So loss aversion. This is, I would say this is probably the biggest of all the cognitive biases that harms wealth management. I start with sunken costs because it's specifically very relevant to trading, but loss aversion is just in general for wealth management. And so this, this is what it's about. So imagine that you gained a hundred dollars suddenly you know there's a bank mistake in your favor and you know suddenly somehow you get a hundred dollars you know and think about how it feels right you know it feels good you get a hundred dollars that's nice good now imagine different situation imagine that you just found out you lost a hundred dollars you know something broke you need to replace it it's a problem you got some kind of fine that's you lost a hundred dollars how does that feel now when you think about it, and when you actually look at the research, how people feel about it, you see that people overwhelmingly care about losses more than they care about gains. A lot more, like really a lot more. So I'll give you another example. When you ask people, hey, here, I'll give you two options. 
one option. I'll give you $45 in cash. So right now I'm giving you $45 in cash. So here, you can keep those $45. You have those $45 here. Now you can give those back to me. And what I'll offer you is a flip of a coin. If the coin is tails, you'll get $100. If it's heads, oh, I keep your $45. So what do you do? What overwhelmingly, you know, 80 to 90% of the people do in those situations is keep $45. They want that $45. Now it feels comfortable. It feels good, right? They don't want to lose money on the coin flip. But think about the coin flip. The coin flip is a 50% chance of getting $100. That's $50. You are, you are giving up $50 for $45. Now, that is always an investment you should be making. If you get $45, you know, the, the likely return on investment of the ROI is $50. That is when you, if you really analyze it, it's a no brainer, right? You should be making that decision. But the large majority of people don't. Why is that? Well, because they don't want to give up that $45. They don't want to lose. They're worried about that, you know, chance. But think about this. Our life, when you think about the, the ways that we live our life, it's made up of, you know, 10, 100, 1,000, 100,000 coin flips, right? So 100,000 coin flips, right? 100,000 of those opportunities. When you have 100,000 of those opportunities, that's $4.5 million if you decide to keep the $45. Or that's $5 million. Now, that's probably around the, what you'll make in your lifetime, 4.5 million on average, right? Some people make more, some people make less. But do you make 4.5 million or you make 5 million? Now, when you think, when you ask the average person, they'd much rather make the 5 million. <laughs> but the result of each of our individual interactions, when we meet each of these individual decisions, each of these coin flips, we are very tempted to to take the $45 because we don't want to lose. We don't want to take the wise and risk that we should. And so as a result, we'll lose a lot of money. That's 10% of our money. Think about losing 10% of your prof of your salary per year. That's a lot of money, but because you're not taking the right risks. And so that's called loss aversion. And so loss aversion is hits us in our investments, it hits us in our salaries, in our jobs, in our professional decision-making, hits us in our lives and the kind of risks we take or don't take in our lives. Loss aversion is a fundamental cognitive bias. It causes a lot of problems throughout our lives. We can shift a little bit away from finance because they think these topics are, you know, relevant to life in general, right? Um, Absolutely. Loss aversion. Uh, is that why people don't break up with girlfriends or <laughs> that's more sunken costs actually so sunken costs. Costs when, that's right yeah, when the, when you already invested a lot of your emotions into a relationship you don't want to lose those emotions and that all the time and labor you invested into the relationship and you're like oh you know I'll, i won't find somebody else i don't want to you know lose what i right. had and people just keep throwing good emotions after yeah, that good time so that's yeah. So, so here, there's a very important concept that, that we want to think about called opportunity costs. So opportunity costs is the concept that we're not seeing what the resources are that we could be using for all other sorts of opportunities. So in relationships, right? So we're thinking we're in a relationship that we're like not very happy about, and we don't think it's really going to go anywhere, but we're kind of like whatever, you know, it, it's fine. I don't want to take the effort to find somebody else. But we don't think about 
what are the opportunities that we're losing out every day that we're stuck in a bad relationship. So that is something that we're not thinking about, the opportunity costs of being stuck in that relationship. And so the opportunity costs build up over time. You know, it's kind of like compounding interest. They compound. So we could have found something good and we could have been investing resources into a much better relationship or much better investment, or much better friendship, or, you know, maybe could have should have moved to a different city and, you know, be investing resources into that different city, or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So all of these sorts of things are investments that we're not thinking about, because we're missing out the on the opportunity costs, we're blind to them. That's, and that is a cognitive bias called the emission bias. So emission bias there's, when you think about an action, action is called commission. You commit an action, you do something. A mission bias is not doing something. So what it, our intuition tells us that not doing something is not an action. Our intuition tells us that not doing something is not relevant, not important, that we should only be thinking about actions. And so that's why we miss all of these opportunity costs. We miss all of these things that we could be doing. So the mission bias is the failure to realize that not acting is actually a choice. We're making a choice by not acting. We're not taking action and we are really losing out on resources that we could have been gaining all of this time by not acting. So that's the mission bias and that causes serious problems for us with the opportunity costs. What What about, um, you know, I know you have thought about um, you know, the modern, uh, news cycle. And uh, mm -hmm. I think you've described as a post-truth world. How do yeah. cognitive biases, uh, relate to that, um, our new reality in terms of, um, in terms of media? Yeah, this is a very, very powerful dynamic. So one of our biggest cognitive biases relevant to the new world is called the mere exposure effect. So mere exposure effect. So what's that about? Uh, that is the fact that when we get exposed to information, we become more comfortable with the information. And that, so when we become exposed on social media, we're exposed to a lot of information. And whenever we hear something, the first time we hear something, it's more startling, it's more new, it's more novel. We pay more attention to it, we're more, we examine it more, but the more something is repeated, the more comfortable we get with it. So it's the meter exposure effect. And so when you have misinformation, just like when you have a fact, when you're exposed to a fact, you become more comfortable with it over time. And when you become exposed to a lie, to yeah. a falsehood, yeah. you become more comfortable with it over time. It's yeah. less startling. It's less novel. It seems like, oh, yeah, I heard that before. Yeah, that's that's fine. <laughs> now it becomes more and more fine and more and more accepted and more and more part of your background context. And what happens in the end after you've heard about it a couple of several times is you get to what's called the illusion of truth effect. So the illusion of truth, the, you know, when it's been called truthiness, when you have something that is a falsehood, but you have an illusion that it's actually true, that it's actually real, because you've heard about it a bunch of times. Uh, from whatever sources. It doesn't have to be sources you trust. It can be just someone posting something on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else you follow, or you know, some news channel that is not very reliable in saying that. So you have this mere exposure effect that comes from that comfort. So think about all of these things, by the way, go back to the Savannah environment. In the Savannah environment, 
when you're exposed to a stimulus and when that stimulus doesn't result in a threat to you, you know, that news information that you're exposed doesn't result in a threat to you <laughs> immediately, uh, then you become, it's more like, okay, it becomes part of your background and you're not as worried about it. And it's like, okay, that's fine. That, that's, that, that's a stimulus I don't have to pay attention to in, in anymore. It's just there. It's just whatever. And so when you become exposed to that sort of stimulus in the modern world over time, it becomes comfortable and it becomes something that you accept as part of your background context. So, so conspiracy theories would be an example mm -hmm. of this, right? I mean, Absolutely. sometimes, um, you know, I hear, I hear some pretty crazy ideas and they're coming out of the mouth of pretty smart people. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how that's possible. And yes, and this is, I guess, potentially how you explain that is that, a, you know, you hear it so many times you may be hearing it for the first time, but this other person who believes it has heard it many times from many sources, and therefore it becomes something that could be real. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Buck. So when that person heard about it from a number of sources, it doesn't have to be credible sources. It can just be a number of times. So that means the problem with social media is that it's not the credibility of the source that, that's important. It's how many times you've been exposed to it that's important. So this is the crucial thing. And this is what people don't get about social media, that what the large majority of us don't pay attention to is the source of the information. We just pay it, our intuition, our gut reaction, our emotions, our cognitive biases cause us just to pay attention to the amount of times that we've been exposed to. So if some organization have, pays for an advertising campaign targeted to you, or if they're using Facebook or Twitter algorithm effectively, they know how to manipulate the algorithm and you get exposed to that information because whether because of advertising or of manipulation of algorithm, then you will start to believe the information that you're exposed to regardless of whether it's true or not, just because of this mere exposure effect. And maybe, you know, maybe not you, maybe you are the individual who is very skeptical about everything they see, but then your friends do and your community does and everyone else does. That is how the, unfortunately, social media has really undermined our democracy. And I talk about that in the book, The Blind Spots Between Us, as well as talking about all this financial education and personal decision making, how we really get into this situation where the social media landscape is really fundamentally undermining our information, our knowledge, based on the information that being, we're being exposed to. And that's not to mention that falsehoods travel on social media faster and further than the truth. And we have extensive research to show this, that they can travel a ten time, up to 10 times as fast and as far as truthful information. Now, why is this? Well, because what travels well on social media is information that causes people to feel angry. It causes people to feel angry. So anger is the fundamental, the biggest emotion that causes people to share something on social media, regardless re regarding politics. I mean, you know, there's cuteness emotions where people share, you know, cat videos, right? But uh, the regarding politics, regarding information about our public policy, people don't share something out of just, you know, oh, you know, 
I've been thinking about this, and this seems like a relevant thing to share. <laughs> yeah, that is not something that really not... leads to sharing. That that leads to reflection. And yeah. people who are calm about something, if it's something like a nuanced perspective, people are much less likely to share it than if it's a strong statement that inspires strong emotions, especially around anger. So that fight response. So people share these things, and what tends to inspire anger? things that are specifically written in a way to design to inspire anger. And that tends to be overwhelmingly misinformation because misinformation can be written. First of all, it can have an image. Images fundamentally really induce people to share. And images are really important. People get a lot of their information about a story from an image and from the headline. So a false story, piece of misinformation, can have as misleading a and stimulating an image as it wants, and as misleading and stimulating anger-inducing, I mean stimulating, I mean stimulating emotions, anger-inducing headline as it wants, and of course, BS in the body of the article or whatever it is, video and so on. And because of its ability to optimize the piece of misinformation to be as anger-inducing as possible, then of course it will be shared more than a truthful piece of information, because you know what? The world is actually pretty messy. It's pretty yeah. complex. Yeah. Issues are, are very rarely black and white. There are always going to be some shades of gray. So an actual truthful, accurate article is going to be much more shades of gray with some nuance and, and some, you know, the truth this is side and the that truth side. is boring. Yeah. Often exactly. the truth is boring. And boring you're, you're doesn't right, Yeah, and boring doesn't uh doesn't sell. Uh doesn't yep. it's not interesting, it's not shareable, nobody cares. Um, exactly. if we know how powerful cog, uh, these cognitive biases are, is there a way to harness them for, you know, to, to improve society, not just pull us apart? Absolutely. So there is a science and a practice, which I describe in the book, the blind spots between us called behavioral science and especially this dynamic called choice architecture. So choice architecture is how we shape society for the good. You might have heard of this as nudging also. So nudging people in the right direction. And one of the big triumphs of choice architecture is default investments. So if you, for example, if you're working for a large corporation and they set up a default investment that automatically without you doing anything, puts away 10% of your saving, of your salary, and matches it with 10%, you know, the, the, the top match of the corporation is going to be 10%. That's going to be a choice architecture development. It's been around since the you know, last couple of decades, I believe. And specifically, companies have been setting up these defaults by because of the findings on cognitive biases and short choice architecture that people tend to stick with whatever the default is. And so previously to this, previously to these findings, companies have been asking people to choose. Do you want to put 10% of your salary away into the you know, kind of deposit for your savings? And many people would say, no, I don't. I, I want to keep all my salary. And they're like, fine, <laughs> you keep your salary. But as a result, people vastly undersave for retirement, and they're going to be in a very bad situation when they're 65 and ready to retire. And so companies have been switching to automatically enroll people and have people have the option, instead of having the option to opt in, people have the option to opt out. Right. 
And when people have the option to opt out, they're like, well, you know, this seems reasonable, fine, I'll, I, I'm not going to opt out. Yeah. And so by this default, people have been making much better choices about their finances. And this has been going on in large corporations, it's been increasingly going on in government, in the, the army has been increasingly instituting these defaults. So right now that you know, our military is going to be in a much better situation when they retire. So that's been a real triumph of choice architecture, of making good decisions, of helping people make good financial decisions. So that's one example. And there are a number of other examples where when you have choice architecture and shape people's choices to give them the right default choices, the right options that are going to be best for them in the end, that if they could get rid of their cognitive biases and self-reflect, the large majority would prefer whatever the default choice is. And if they don't prefer it, they can opt out of it. So that is something that you can do on a society-wide level. Now, on an individual level, what you can do is you know, read my book, The Blind Spots Between Us, and just learn about these cognitive biases. Because there are so many things, like I, I told you about the $45 versus you know, the $50, right? That is something you can do. That is something where you can catch yourself and say, well, you know, this seems risky and... I don't want to take this risk, but really, let's think about it. What if I don't think about this risk as a one-time thing? What if I think about it as a series of things? So if I had a series of choices of $45 versus 50% chance of getting $100, what would I choose? Do I want to get $4.5 million over my life or do I want to get $5 million? <laughs> The vast majority of us would want to get $5 million. So you want to, instead of treating this as a one-off choice, treat it as a series of choices. And when you treat it as a series of choices, you're much better, more likely to make the right decision. And that's just one of many tricks that you can use to address these cognitive biases once you know it. So there's society-wide things we can do and plenty of individual things that we as individuals can do to address these cognitive biases within us. A lot of the solutions that you suggested on the society side, um, they involve, you know, some sort of corporate intervention. And um, I think, um, you know, beyond, uh, I guess some people would have some objections to that in the first place, but I guess one, you know, you have to start with the default one way or another. But, um, but you know, there's an entirely different world uh, that's coming uh, up through distributed ledgers and stuff where there really is no, you know, there, there's no one in charge. How does that change the ante there? Because it, that seems like a, a, a train that's, you know, that, that's, that, that's kind of uh, something that's very difficult to control. I think that's where you talk about the structure. So right now, let's say Ethereum is going through a splitting of fork, right? That the people who manage Ethereum, Vitaly Buterin and others, they can create certain structures. They can create certain defaults that are going to be inducing people to behave in a way that's going to be beneficial as opposed to not beneficial, right? stake of proof and, and so on, what, what kind of environmental will, impact will you have, right? All of these sorts of things. You can think about it going down the road and you can think about how can you shape people's choices to do things that are going to be beneficial for people as opposed to not beneficial for people and where people would actually want these outcomes. There are lots of things that we can be thinking about. And, you know, the government is trying to regulate certain things and 
I'm not saying they're doing the right things or the wrong things. I've not right. investigated that. Right. But that is where the government can have a role, like right? If you if necessarily these distributed ledgers, if they're not constructed in a good way, the government can come in and say, well, maybe we want to limit certain things. Like I think recently, if I remember correctly, the government banned some crypto coin scramblers, which prevent us being able to see where one crypto trans transfer comes from and where it ends to prevent money laundering and other sorts of things like this. Perhaps that's a good thing where we don't want, you know, with this, this sort of level of anonymity, right? Where that's going to scramble and we can't see the final, the final outcome that North Koreans have been using this to hack. Yeah, yeah. So these are the kinds of things where we can make certain interventions and to have outcomes that are going to address some of the cognitive biases that we have and that are inbuilt into our systems. And in a positive way, like corporations and government pension funds have been really using to help us all have a better retirement plan going forward, which is great. Like you want people to be in a better financial situation going yeah. forward, right? right? So that's the kind of things that you want to be thinking about. So the book is The Blind Spots Between Us. Um, Gleb uh, Sibirsky, um, where... We, we can find this book, I presume, everywhere. Amazon, the Absolutely. usual outlets. Amazon, the usual outlets, yep. Oh, is there an Audible? Barnes Noble. Is there an Audible I don't book? Think, no, no, there's not an Audible for this book, but there's for my other books, like Never Go With Your Gut, there are Audible, so if you want to check that out, that's going to be a more business-focused book. The Blind Spots Between Us is focused on professional and personal life. Uh, is there anywhere else we can learn more about what you're doing? Yes, you go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com. That's my website. There's blogs, videos, podcasts on addressing these cognitive biases. So again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. And especially check out uh, the assessment on dangerous judgment errors. So if you want to figure out which of these dangerous judgment errors, which of these cognitive biases are most prevalent and relevant to you, go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe and take the free assessment on dangerous judgment errors. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Fantastic. This is really interesting stuff, uh, Gleb. Uh, very, uh, very helpful. Uh, thank you very much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. We'd love to have you uh, back sometime. Thank you so much, Buck. I really appreciate the invitation. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. I want to remind you one more time because I really want to see you at this event. Go to wealthformulaevents.com. Talk about money and wealth and all that, but we're also going to talk about how you can live for a very long time, feel great, and are prepared for you know this concept of longevity escape velocity. Check it out, wealthformulaevents.com. Again, that's wealthformulaevents.com. This meetup, you know, I really want you guys to come to this meetup. I mean, I, I think it's really important. It's October 7th and 8th in Dallas. Again, it is wealthformulaevents.com. Again, that's wealthformulaevents with an S.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.